0: Thank you very much for coming and uh, I'd like to welcome you to this evening's uh, guest lecture which is part of the evidence-based healthcare master's programme. I'm delighted to introduce uh, Professor Alan Silman who is an epidemiologist and rheumatologist and is currently the professor of musculoskeletal health here in Oxford. He's also the uh, author of the uh, core textbook that we and recommend and I started my research career out with Alan, so a lot of what I am now is thanks to Alan. and I'm personally very excited that he's here tonight. Um, and he's going to talk to us about how bad a study design is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we haven't got too many of our own examples. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Well, thanks, Claire. Um, so, I am aware. Um, that you've been at it all day. Um, So, firstly, feel free to nod off. Um, uh, I'm used to it. Um, And secondly, I'll try and make it reasonably light-hearted, as much as epidemiology um, uh, can be uh, light-hearted. And really, to kind of share with you um, um, some thoughts about um, kind of things that uh, I, I may or may not have, have, have done uh, differently um, When um, so I'm going to talk about four challenging areas um, one is primary data collection worth the hassle um, secondly uh, epidemiology is not the art of the perfect the art of the possible uh, thirdly that um, uh, the days of the randomized controlled trial are probably at an end um, and fourthly we spend a lot of our life trying to identify causes um, and do we actually know what we mean so those are the um, four areas that I'm, I'm going to attack um, and uh, hopefully if do nothing else but stimulate a little bit of uh, discussion um, so what about primary versus secondary data collection what do i mean by that clearly i mean the studies that claire was so wonderfully involved in when we worked together in manchester is what was traditionally the view of the epidemiologist you went out and you interviewed people or you sent them a questionnaire by post or you did some measurement um, on them. Um, And the alternative is that you use the data that somebody else has collected. And if you were to draw up uh, a a balance sheet, this would be um, on your balance sheet. Well, of course, it's expensive collecting primary data and it takes a lot of time. It's quite difficult to do it in a broad area, but if you know what you want to collect, it can be uh, accurate, and you can um, collect it um, a quite a lot in, in quite some detail. And the secondary data uh, costs are low, speed is quick. You can cover a broad area. Um, accuracy, well, very interesting. Um, actually, very interesting. I was I. I often said them is an epidemiologist particularly if you're interested in international health the one thing you can rely on is vital statistics births and deaths Uh, and i was at a meeting a few months ago chatting with a colleague from um, um, india who told me that he reckoned probably only about 30 percent of indian death certificates were accurate so we assume that um Uh, secondary uh, data uh, maybe has even low accuracy, maybe it's not even um, um, as good as that. Um, But I think um, there um, are um, an enormous number of issues in collecting primary data. And when I think of the amount of uh, effort that I've engaged in, and I guess more importantly, (laughs) forced other people to engage in, um, in collecting data, Um, and the first thing is this issue of, well, we never study a whole population, and we only ever study a sample. And actually, when you start thinking about that, it immediately, causes a lot of anxiety. Because the whole basis of statistics is based on the fact that we are taking a random sample and inferring something about a whole population. Now, let's take the simplest idea where you're doing a a population in, in terms of a census, a whole national population. How do we go about taking a true random sample well it's actually very very difficult and we might go to primary care but what is a, a primary care uh, a, a population how representative and how do we know that that primary care population is representative of all other populations much more challenging um, than that is when we as clinicians study patients with a disease in a case control study or recruitment for a longitudinal observational study. Because what we do, we make the inference that the people we are studying are a representative sample of everybody with the disease. As a disease that exists now. Has existed in the past? Will exist in the future? Well, of course, we can't take people who will exist in the future because we don't know who they are. And studying people who exist in the past are going to tell us about things that are of historical interest. So once we start thinking that we're doing taking a random sample of a people um, Uh, with a disease in terms of sampling we realize that the underpinning that we're taking a true random sample um, is flawed if i take a you know do a clinical trial the people i treat with the disease in my study though future generations future physicians future healthcare professionals will want to know that my sample is the same well clearly it, it can't be so I think some of the inferences we're making um, are flawed. It's why I guess I'm saying epidemiology is the art of the possible. However, even if we can um, get that, um, we've got to get uh, permissions. Now, um, you can't necessarily read all those stages, but it is incredibly hard getting all the necessary uh, permissions to get a study started. The National Institute of Health Research reckons on from the date of letter of your award, not the date of the letter of when you submit your grant, but when that letter lands in your mailbox, We are pleased to tell you you have got the grant. Way hey You are lucky if you recruit your first patient within 18 months. That's what they work on. 18 months from award to recruitment of of, of, of first patient. And there are... I don't... there isn't time, I probably don't need to tell you, the enormous steps that you need to go through in terms of the ethical approval the governance and all the um, um, relationships connected with that and government attempts to try and simplify that process have really um, um, struggled um, I remember some years ago uh, very long time ago I wanted to do a study of a very Well, it's it's quite a common condition um, that some of you in the audience will have heard of, called polymyalgia rheumatica. It's a condition uh, where elderly people get significant ache and stiffness in their joints, not associated with arthritis, but isn't associated with increased um, inflammation, raised ESR in the blood. And nobody knew how common it was. So I decided I wanted to do a study. And I thought that I would choose a a convenience sample instead of a a, um, a random sample, and went to an old people's home or three old people's home in Southend on Sea. Um, didn't bother getting ethical approval because you didn't need it in those days, and I just contacted somebody around the home and said, "Yes, that's fine." So I turned up at the home and said, "The doctor's here to take your blood." <laughs> um, i shouldn 't be telling you this <laughs> oh, well anyway, I did, and it got published and it was the, 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 the this country 's first data on the epidemiology of polymyalgia um, to do the same thing um, today would be very difficult um, and even if you got all the permissions, um, uh, what about getting a um, worthwhile uh, response um, I spent about 15 years of my life on the steering committee of UK Biobank. Hands up, who's heard of UK Biobank? So, lots of, so UK Biobank, those who haven't heard of it, was this country's was Tony Blair. Great initiative. Study um, half a million people. Um, and the main aim of the study was to look for gene and environment interactions of the main diseases um, in the elderly. So the aim was to recruit half a million um, adults aged between 45 and 64 um, in the UK. Um, and the studies that we'd been doing, we reckoned when I was involved in epidemiology, we re- wanted to recruit random samples of the population. We reckoned that with a bit of a push, we could probably get up to 65-70% uh, response rate. But UK Biobank letters would come through asking people to contribute blood, urine and answer some questions for the greater good of humanity and take part in something very much worthwhile. Do you know what the response rate was to Biobank? Anybody know? Pardon? It was about 10%. It was about 10%. Um, and that's really interesting because the couple of things that um, uh, came out um, may be um, not surprising Um, If you look, uh, maybe, um, at the distribution of uh, Townsend score, um, which is, as you know, is an index of of deprivation, well, clearly the people um, uh, who took part in UK Biobank were not representative uh, of, of, of the great British population. Now, in some ways, I remember when we when we had a big discussion about UK Biobank, we had this great discussion about representativeness and, and sampling. And we talked about minorities and how, how did we ensure that there was a sufficient representation of the multiple minority groups um, that um, exist in the current UK population. And, of course, this is a constant... Change and did we, you know, if if zero point zero three percent of the population came from Vietnam, did we have to have zero point zero three percent of the of the respondents Vietnamese? And if we didn't, did that mean our um, uh, conclusions weren't extrapolatable? So it was a challenge, and in the end, we um, decided to drop it and hoped that we would have enough in in different minority groups um, to make a judgment. But we've seen about. Uh, Townsend um, uh, um, score. Um, We also see um, uh, here in terms of um, cigarette smoking. These are data comparing um, UK Biobank um, with the Health Survey for England. And of course Health Survey for England doesn't necessarily mean that it's representative but clearly the people who were recruited to in UK Biobank uh, overrepresented the more affluent, the healthy, um, the worried well, uh, the more educated um, in the population. And yet UK Biobank has been one uh, been a very rich resource on the epidemiology of hundreds of diseases um, within the UK. Does it matter? Well, I don't know. Um, it possibly makes a, a less relevance when you're comparing within the cohort to compare, say, uh, between never smokers and current smokers within Biobank, might be just as relevant as comparing between current smokers and never smokers in the population as a whole. That is an assumption. Um, which may or may not uh, be true. But certainly in terms of just understanding the prevalence, um, there's clearly a limit. Um, The other thing is that the the survey method um, works without problems. Um, that we believe when we are collecting that um, information the information um, we're collecting is giving us the answer uh, we want and sometimes that's um, not the case Um, I remember um, a number of years ago I was involved in a study of back pain in thirty-five European populations and we translated the question into the different languages and then we back translated to make sure that the meaning hadn't been lost okay and we found and these were general population samples and the prevalence of back pain varied between seven And 82% in the different populations I cannot believe I cannot believe that the differences we found were due to differences in the true occurrence of back pain what I do believe is that actually most people don't know where their back is I'm sure if I was to ask you where your back was, you would all tell me somewhere something different. Somebody here, somebody here. Some might you can't see what I'm doing. Um, and what is pain? What's an ache? Etc. Etc. Um, you take a member in UK Biobank. We angsted long and hard about dietary survey methodology. How we ascertain uh, what what people eat. Um, I've been doing some work recently about physical activity in the elderly. Now you can come up with all the instruments you like, and there are hundreds of instruments, and we can look at their qualities, and their interrater and interrater reliabilities, etc., etc. But most of the things we are measuring are surrogates for something that is really quite difficult. Now, that's not to say they're meaningless. Clearly they're not meaningless. Um, But there are challenges and often we put blind faith um, in the data we have. And interestingly, um, it's only when we have the comparative data that we realise there may be an issue. Um, and and One example of this is um, I've been interested, or I was interested some years ago, um, in whether some new drugs for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis were associated um, with an increased rate of particular, of, of people having various kinds of infections. And we did the same study in England and in Sweden And we found that in the people who took this drug, they had exactly the same rate of infection, which was fantastic. Maybe that was a suggestion of some validation of the method we chose. The problem was that the comparison group in England and the comparison group in Sweden were so different that we didn't find a significant difference and they did. So we both had the same outcome in the treated group, but we both had very different outcomes in the untreated group, possibly related to the way we collected the data and possibly the way we collected the sample. Um, um, the other problem, particularly in, uh, in prospective longitudinal studies, um, um, is retention. Um, um, When I left uh, Manchester, I was the Medical Director of Arthritis Research UK for some time, and we had a very ambitious programme of doing some clinical trials, major clinical trials. Clinical trials that needed answering. And for each clinical trial, we had a committee of the great and the good, and maybe the not-so-great and not-so-good sometimes, um, to determine whether this trial was achieving its goals. And there was a real emphasis on recruitment. And it was a bit like, you know, the, you know, the new, new funds for the church steeple. You know, the, as the, it goes up, have we raised enough money? So has the recruitment reached the required level? Actually, recruitment in clinical trials is a bit of an issue. The biggest problem is retention. The bigger problem is retention. And the people you lose means that they are not providing that information now we could have a discussion about imputation we could have a discussion about missing at random completely at random etc um, etc et but the one of the points i want to make is which i think is a, is a, a really important point that in terms of primary data collection in studies the people you lose are possibly the biggest determinant of the loss of validity um, of of a study. And it is very hard, very hard often uh, to retain people. So, uh, why not um, use routine uh, available data? I mean, often routine data is collected, often without any aims. Primary care data, hospital data, census data, um, occupational data of many kinds is not collected to answer research specific work research questions. Often um, it's done for the purpose of finance uh, um, or audit, but I suppose the good thing is um, it's not um, fixed in time. And as um, Claire knows, we have in the UK, we've got really good primary care data. Now we can discuss whether it is of research quality. Um, how different general practices, different general practitioners, use different terms. <coughs> we recently were interested in CPRD to assess people with hip pain. And the way that that was coded by different general practitioners was quite uh, uh, remarkable. But nevertheless, it exists, and it exists longitudinally. Um, We've got very good data for some diseases, uh, particularly um, cancer. Um, We've got um, some uh, data on people who are admitted to hospital. Um, It's not brilliant. The coding is dependent on the coding done by the person who's responsible. Suppose somebody comes into hospital to have a knee joint replaced and then develops a venous thrombosis um, and then has a pulmonary embolus and then develops a pneumonia, what gets coded, what doesn't get coded, what's the important thing, um, what's not the important thing when people then have readmission, etc, etc. There's a number of complexities uh, with hospital data um, and increasingly with people treated as daycare, um, etc and we're also very bad at understanding um, people who might come in for example injection treatment or some physiotherapy or something like that Um, I've been um, heavily involved um, in the National Joint uh, Register which is a register of everybody in the UK uh, actually in England um, uh, um, who's had um, joint replacements um, there are joint replacement registers in many countries in the world. They have spawned an enormous amount of data about the value and the consequences um, of joint uh, replacement um, surgery. But they are not without problems. They are not complete. We all know they're not complete, although the completeness has gone up. They are not always accurate. We do, they don't always have complete um, follow-up and often in terms of the things that you want, that information um, is missing maybe in terms of some of the outcomes. So it's quite good on maybe short-term effects, and it's might be very good for manufacturers, but long-term um, health outcomes. Um, and I've also been involved in drug um, uh, uh, treatment registers. And again, um, uh, they can be very useful um, means of uh, understanding the long-term consequences. So, um, yes, secondary data has its limitations, but it's there. It's available to be used uh, for a whole range um, um, of of uses. For descriptive um, epidemiology, it can tell you um, very easily in a way that will be very difficult to do for primary data collection in terms of, for example, the incidence, in this case, of different forms of ischemic heart disease. It can understand the age and gender influence. Um, You can look at at time trends. um, uh, And uh, over the years, I've used publicly available data to look at seasonal trends in relation to certain conditions because with all its limitations how else can you um, understand that and also um, um, you can look for a geographical uh, variation um, routine data though um, to some extent um, is is limited uh, because as i say routine data is collected for routine purposes. It's not collected to um, answer um, any specific questions. And there was a very big, and in fact, actually, um, in the today's, was it today's Guardian, there was something about dangers of implants, that all these nasty orthopedic surgeons putting nasty bits of metal into otherwise non-nasty human beings. Um, and, why didn't something like the National Joint Register um, understand that people where there was a, uh, a metal um, pelvic bit and a metal hip bit, so called metal on metal, why didn't the National Joint Register come out with that these things are harmful? The um, metal ions get into, the, uh, into local tissues, cause a reaction, um, and, uh, and the, the joints can become loose, etc, etc, etc. Now, it was it the fault of the National Joint Register that it didn't answer the question? The National Joint Register said, look, we've got the data, it was up to you, whoever that you is, to think of the question um, and answer it. So often we kind of assume that all these large routine data sets will somehow answer questions that they have been taught, maybe some machine learning or something. Um, um, To tell you, essentially they are a tool, but they need, at the moment, a a human... um, um, interface um, to, to ask questions. I think um, what is um, useful is the potential that you can um, uh, uh, explore things within routine data, and it may be that it's um, there's some potential for doing research within the register, but often a register um, is limited. I think um, some of the most interesting stuff is the potential linkage between um, uh, registers. Um, And um, I'm sure a number of you will have heard of the Farr Institute. Um, And I went to a very interesting talk where in Wales they had linked childhood absence at school um, with mental illness later on in life. So this is the potential of linking registers that can um, add to the richness of one register. I sometimes feel it would be wonderful to live in countries other than um, Britain. And in fact, I think what's happened recently, I think it'd be necessary to live somewhere other than in Britain (coughs) if you want to survive as a researcher. Um, But anyway, who knows? Schmegalith, through um, But um, there's a colleague of mine in Sweden a number of years ago, and in Sweden, uh, up to a few years ago, believe it or not, they had conscription. I'm not sure what the people did in the Swedish army, I'm not sure who the enemy was, maybe the Danes. Um, uh, but one of the questions that they asked these Swedish conscripts uh, was how regularly they took cannabis, which, of course, being Swedish, they were very happy to tell you about. Um, and they were then. This guy was then able to link these anonymized questionnaires that were collected on all Swedish conscripts to the Swedish Mental Health Register to show there was a link between cannabis use in recruits um, and uh, schizophrenia later on in life. Now, let's not to say that it was the cannabis. May there be, um, uh, you know, other confounders, um, uh, but the. Uh, uh, potential of linking uh, registers uh, is really important um as claire invited me um how could i not uh talk about uh, an example where we were able to link uh, two registers where we were interested in diet and and rheumatoid arthritis and it just this to do a study of a disease as rare as rheumatoid arthritis, collecting decent diet data would have been impractical. And what we were um, able to do was link a disease register that Claire worked on, uh, the Norfolk Arthritis Register, with a very detailed register of diet um, carried out fortuitously um, um, in the same um, area. area and we were able to show linking those two registers that diets uh, rich in certain uh, fruits uh, were protective against development of rheumatoid arthritis um, so um, and, and Biobank the richness of Biobank is not in terms of what data Biobank collected cross-sectionally uh, but what it can tell us say linked to, to primary care um, but the challenge in routine data uh, is, is, is quality um, and, and I, I talked to you about the National Joint Register which has been used as the data on the outcome um, of hip joint replacement and the quality of the data, it's, it's, it's good But it's not what we would call research quality because research quality data requires, as you know, the kind of things that, you know, we're constantly testing for drift, for variation between observers and look at variation within observers and the way things are collected, completeness, etc, etc and the kind of things we teach epidemiologists in terms of how you maintain data quality in a study lasting six months or a year or two years, and here we're relying on data collected nationally over maybe decades, and there isn't the funding, there isn't this all, we cannot accept we have to, so we have to accept um, um, that there are um, limitations um, in the quality of the data. And there's a trade-off between, on the one hand, I've told you how difficult it is to type primary data, but we have to accept that there are challenges um, in the quality of secondary data. So, um, uh, epidemiology to me, um, I don't think it's possible. Um, to do the, um, uh, the, the perfect um, study, um, I think anybody who says that they've done the perfect study, um, I don't think is telling the, the truth. Um, but I think what it's our responsibility as investigators to do two things to be clear about the possible imperfections. Is it a sampling bias? Is there problems with the survey methodology? Is there a problem with non-response loss to follow-up? And be open about it, and then, and then the key thing is say, and okay, given that, what are the consequences? What are the consequences? And sometimes, guys, sometimes it might be that actually the consequences can be helpful. A bias could be helpful. What do you mean? What do I mean? Has the guy lost his marbles? A bias could be helpful. Um, um, let me give you a suggestion, a, a, a real example. So there was an, at one time there was a worry that women who had influenza during pregnancy um, were um, um, at risk of Having an infant who would have delayed milestones, so they took women, they took children with delayed milestones, and had a comparison group of children without delayed milestones, um, and they interviewed the mothers about whether they'd had influenza, influenza in pregnancy, and actually, that was probably the only way they could get that information because it wouldn't have been easily recorded because most of them may not have gone to their GP. And you immediately would say, well, of course, the women who had a child with lay mouse bones would be more likely to recall the things that had happened in pregnancy, and maybe would be more likely to recall having influenza than a woman who's got a normal, healthy baby. And this would be a criticism of that study. That particular study found no difference that particular study found no difference. So, if there had been a bias, it would have been in the direction of finding a difference. And because they found no difference, in some ways, that bias in the study, in that study design, did not really affect the conclusion, which was, in this particular instance, reassurance. So, biases, in that sense, um, uh, 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 can be helpful. So, it's important to be clear about biases uh, and it's important to go beyond that and understand how the imperfections will have influenced the results. So I tell my PhD students, for example, I don't expect you to do the perfect study, but what I do expect you, I do expect you to understand in great detail the imperfections of what you've done and how they may have altered, if at all, and by how much the results you've obtained ok moving on swiftly um, ok randomized controlled trials are overblown um, I could talk for a long time about randomized controlled trials I've only done I think three in, in uh, my life um, um, and in fact it's the only paper I ever got in the New England Journal of Medicine um, um, but There are challenges. They're expensive, they're at the time, relevant ethics, government recruitment, retention, etc., etc. And there is a big debate between doing a randomized controlled trial and a longitudinal observational study. And, you know, we worship uh, the god of the randomized controlled trial. Um, And despite all their difficulties, as People in clinical practice would say, Well, I know we, we, we have to look at the best evidence. And the best evidence is a meta analysis of clinical trials because we've all read the, the Cochrane reviews. Actually, I must tell you, when I did, I, I was taught by Archie, Archie Cochrane. Um, it's an interesting guy, very interesting guy. Um, um, Eris Callow rose in the poll. Well, didn 't make him interesting, I just remember that um, but one wonders, particularly in treatment trials um, which is a more useful question, which is a more useful question is drug a better than drug b is treating patients with surgery treat better than treating people with physiotherapy is Treating people with CBT on the telephone better than having individual CBT. Yeah, we know that all these things are probably useful, but we're keen to have a, a, a single answer. But maybe the more important question practically is which patients, which populations, will do better with A and which with B? Because actually, In today's world, when we do these comparative studies of treatment, actually they're probably all effective in somebody. Um, One of my spare time um, occupations is I chair uh, the appeals panel for NICE. Um, And NICE is often based on whether we approve um, or uh, uh, don't approve a drug or uh, a technology for use in the NHS. And the appeal always comes down on not whether drug A works or not, or it is even it can be shown to be cost effective or not. Because in some people it will work and in them people it will be cost effective, but in others it won't work and in others it won't be cost effective. So on the whole it may be that it might not be more cost effective than some people or work more, but the drug company or the patient advocacy group or the healthcare professional advocacy group say but if we knew the subgroup in whom it worked then we should use the drug and we can show you clinical trials we can show you observational studies where we've done the subgroup analysis and shown that in this subgroup it's great and therefore NICE use it. And we couldn't do a clinical trial of every possible subgroup because we didn't know what subgroups they were to start off with and it would have been too expensive. But of course the statisticians say, well, this is post-hoc reasoning. You can't go, if you didn't start off with your analysis, you didn't start off setting out to look at this subgroup, don't come to us as pure statisticians and say, now I c- it works in a subgroup. But I just wonder, folks, I just wonder, folks, in reality, whether actually accepting that most treatments will work in some people, the challenge is not A, but is better than B, P less than 0.05, or even P less than 0.01, because it could be 48% and 52% like the referendum. Um, so I wasn't going to mention that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mention that. Um, but it, it, it's actually in, in, in who it worked, And it's really interesting to me because for years I was a practicing clinician and, and I, I was impressed that there were, there were drugs that I used that worked in some patients but didn't work in others but different drugs worked in others and didn't work in in the, the other group. And if I'd done a clinical trial it might have told me something about the order I should use the drug But it doesn't necessarily tell me who it works. And maybe we need to rebalance some of the questions we ask in terms of doing the good longitudinal study. And that doesn't mean to say that there's any compromise on quality. To do a high-quality longitudinal observational study that enables you to do a proper subgroup analysis you need to apply the same rigor in sampling in recruitment in the retention in the methodological quality of um, reliability validity etc it's not an opportunity to do a study on the cheap but it's maybe an opportunity um uh, to do something um uh, that's perhaps more useful um i'm just going to in in the last um four or five minutes I just want to just out of interest talk you a little bit about why we need epidemiology um, anyway um, so what actually is a cause um, um, two weeks ago I was in um, Hiroshima um, and I heard some harrowing stories harrowing testimony about radiation damage You didn't need an epidemiologist uh, to know that radiation causes severe radiation burn. It was both necessary um, and sufficient. Um, When I was at school, this came out. Thalidomide and fetal limb damage, which had never been this had never been seen before, and thalidomide was advertised for a drug you can safely take in pregnancy to have a good night's sleep. That's how it was advertised on the medical journals. Um, you never got this condition of phocomelia uh, unless you'd taken thalidomide. It, was, it hadn't been heard of before. So the drug was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. Because most women who took it fortunately didn't uh, um, end up with a deformed child um, we know we know in fact from Hiroshima that a lot of people who were irradiated there um, developed uh, leukemia but uh, we do know that actually people get leukemia without being irradiated and not everybody um, uh, um, 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 you can't get leukemia without being irradiated, but if you'd had sufficient radiation, then the rates of leukemia were very, very high. So it was sufficient to cause the disease, uh, but not necessary. But that's not the world we live in. Uh, we live in a world of a mass flu vaccine and narcolepsy, and I'm sure after a day on your course, however good it is, maybe many of you suffer from... No, actually, amazingly, Uh, narcolepsy. Um, And actually this was something um, I was um, asked to um, sat on a a panel about when they had this uh, um, mass flu vaccine for H1N1 and whether it caused narcolepsy. But of course, um, you know, most most people who um, developed narcolepsy haven't recently had a flu vaccine. We knew narcolepsy existed, and most people um, uh, who uh, had the vac- who uh, had the vaccine didn't get narcolepsy. So we know most cases of narcolepsy not immunised, and most immunised people did not get n- narcolepsy. So in this case, that. Um, uh, uh, immunisation may be a cause but not be uh, the cause and so my uh, finally just a very with through as we're in Oxford now uh, we often look to understand causes um, with uh, Bradford uh, um, um, Hill and Bradford Hill uh, who was a medical statistician who was the first person to link smoking with lung cancer said OK, there's many cases like the, uh, the flu vaccine and narcolepsy where it's not obvious and causes are not ne- sufficient and necessary. But let me give you some criteria. The effect is strong, not true. We know that what modern genetics has told us, that genetic effects can be very real because they're biological, but often very weak. Um, the effect is consistent, makes it more likely. Actually not true, because often we get inconsistent results because the research quality was not good. Um, the, there is a specificity about that relationship between the perceived outcome, uh, uh, between the perceived um, predictor and outcome. But actually, that is often not the case. Many things like obesity or cigarette smoking, for example, associate with many outcomes. Um, what about dose response? Well, again, not true. It may be that some things are threshold. Um, other um, evidence is coherent. Well, it may be coherent. Uh, it may not be. Um, is it biologically plausible? Well, is it biologically plausible that this vaccine was going to cause narcolepsy? Actually, you know, probably not. Probably not. Um, and there are so many areas where we, we, we come up. Is it biologically plausible that exercise may protect you against having a stroke? I just pose that question to you. I'm sure they can find some evidence that makes it biologically plausible, but you might find evidence against it. But what Bradford Hill goes on to say is that ultimately we need experimental proof which relies on a a randomised clinical trial. And after attending this talk, you probably think that is not a route that you will go down. And on that happy note, I will take criticisms or even missiles thrown at me. Thank you very much.